Today's reading is Matthew 18, 23 through 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he owned be sold to repay the debt. At this time, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'd like to invite you to look with me at the parable that was just read to us this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 18, please. There's one sitting underneath your, um, that's right underneath your seat if you're looking for one. It's page 823 in those blue Bibles. And if you have an app, feel free to open that up. We're close to completing our summer series that has been titled Short Stories by Jesus. We've been looking at the parables of Jesus. Now, why the parables? Well, Jesus knows that stories are a good way of getting people's attention. And so Jesus would tell stories to get people's attention, but he was also using stories to pique people's interest and curiosity in the kingdom of God. Because Jesus was continually talking about the kingdom of God. So these parables aren't simply short stories with a moral at the end, kind of like Aesop's fables where you can kind of take it or leave it. But rather, these short stories are intended to do something. They're intended to convert us. They're intended to convert us to the reality that God is wanting to show us. They're intended to convert us to the world that, that God is wanting to break in, to, to reveal to us. They're, they're intended to convert us to, to the life that God wants to give to us. They're intended to convert us to see something that most people miss. They're intended to convert us to enter the kingdom of God. So this parable is pretty clear, even for listeners in the 21st century. It isn't uh, filled with loads of culturally specific details that are difficult to grasp for us in the 21st century. But I will draw attention to two things just to kind of clear out before we, uh, before we look at this in more detail. When Jesus talks about servants, and the word that is used in my text is the word servant in this parable, most of Jesus' sayings about slaves or servants envision them as performing managerial tasks, not menial tasks. 
So when we hear the word servant, perhaps we see you know, something on a movie or something like that where it's just somebody that's just uh, doing uh, very horrible things at the behest of a master. But these servants often perform managerial tasks. And in this case, it's believed that this particular servant that owed 10,000 talents is a tax farmer. In other words, he collect, t- collected taxes for the master, for this well- in this case, this wealthy king, and he came up short when he, owed, when he was supposed to be collecting these taxes. So that's just a little cultural background. The other one is talents, uh, the word that is used here multiple times, talent or talents. Uh, not to be confused with America's Got Talent, because we know that America doesn't have a lot of talent, if you've watched that show. Um, it's, so it's not about singing or dancing or anything like that, but rather it's a measurement of weight, uh, typically of gold or silver or copper. And it varied. It was approximately 60 to 90 pounds. So 10,000 talents in this um, text, in this parable, would be equivalent to 204 metric tons. 204 metric tons. Now, that then raises another question. What's a metric ton? What weighs a metric ton? And um, an elephant weighs a metric ton. So what weighs 204 metric tons? And you're probably thinking, yeah, 204 elephants. That's not where I was going. Uh, A blue whale weighs around 200 metric tons. Uh, a blue whale's tongue weighs as much as an elephant. A blue whale's tongue weighs a metric tongue. So you, you're, looking at, 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 you're looking at something very, very large in this story. Now, depending upon which metal was used, a talent was equal to 6,000 denarii, and a denarii was the average daily wage of a day laborer. So to repay 10,000 talents, it would take a day laborer 164,000 years. So you're saying, okay, did Jesus really intend everybody to do those computations when they're hearing the story? No, he's doing hyperbole here. So anybody familiar with the the culture would understand that what Jesus was doing was pushing the boundaries of of an amount that no one could possibly repay. So let's look at the story together. The structure is very easy. It's three scenes. Uh, Scene one is between the master and the servant. That's verses 24 to 27. Scene two is verses 28 to 30. That's the first servant and the second servant. And then scene three is back to the first servant and the master. And that's verses 31 to 34. The thrust of the story is pretty easy to, to comprehend, even at just listening to it being read one time. And it's this, it's someone who's been forgiven a large debt, a debt he could never repay, turns around and refuses to forgive someone who owes a much smaller debt in comparison. The theme is forgiveness. The theme is forgiveness. So what does this parable do? If these parables are intended to do something, what does this parable do? Well, it reminds me that I've been forgiven an enormous, unpayable debt by God. And while God would be just to judge my sin with eternal separation, with eternal alienation, he has chosen to forgive my sin through Jesus. I have received God's stunningly gracious forgiveness. And it's the most radical power in the world. You think about the types of power that are in our world today that, that maybe get all the press that are in the, you know, if you look at the news, if you pay attention to, to power out there, there's economic power, there's the power of money, there's political power, there's military power, there's the power of love. 
But there's only one type of power that can get you out of prison. And that's the power of forgiveness. Because if you can't find forgiveness or forgive others, you're in prison. I mean, think about how much energy is exhausted in tossing and turning at night over guilt or resentment. Guilt because you can't find forgiveness or resentment because you're finding it difficult to forgive. But the good news is that Jesus came to set us free. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus came to disarm the powers. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, He has disarmed the powers of this world that keep people enslaved. He has disarmed the powers that animate the world's system. Powers like money and sex and, and the power that is used to, to keep people enslaved in, a varieties of way, in varieties of ways. Jesus has come to defeat the powers. He has come to free us from that so that we might enter fully into the life that He offers to us. And So since I've been forgiven in such an extraordinary way, this parable is telling me that I should in turn be ready and willing to forgive others. So did you get that from the reading? Did you, did you basically hear that kind of theme when it was being read? I mean, that, that wasn't so difficult to pull out, was it? And if you did get that, that's good, because that's what the text is telling us. Now, I do want to qualify and say, when, even when we were praying before we came out, that to, to, to come at a topic of forgiveness is very, very difficult in a group this size where we don't get to have a conversation. Because the chances are that someone in this room, more than one person, is wrestling with either not being able to find forgiveness from someone or having a difficult time forgiving someone. For a variety of reasons. You've been hurt, you've been deeply wounded, whatever it is. I mean, and I'm not diminishing that, I'm not downplaying that. That is a real human condition, okay? I'm going to tell you, though, that I cannot cover everything that possibly could be covered in terms of forgiveness. I have, I have many, many books in my library on the topic of forgiveness. There are people that have, have wrestled with this issue and have done some extraordinary work on, on the dynamics of forgiveness and all that. This parable is not intended to unpack everything that you could possibly raise in terms of an objection about, but you don't know my situation. And I don't know everybody's situation. And I can't speak into everybody's situation. But what I can do today is take this text that's a parable from Jesus and do with, with the parable what it's intended to do. You see what I'm trying to say? When I come to the text of Scripture, I can, I, what I'm attempting to do is to come under it and to allow it to speak in the way it's intended to speak. And oftentimes when you're speaking, someone will say, but you didn't say this, you didn't say this, you didn't say this, and what about this, and what about this, and what about this? And there can be a reason, especially in a situation, in a topic that's so sensitive such as this, and so personal. Because I don't speak to your situation, then it can be easy to pull yourself out of the mix of being part of the audience Jesus is speaking to. Do you understand what I'm getting at? It's easy to step back and eliminate yourself from the words that Jesus wants to offer because I can't address everything that might be pertinent to your condition. 
So I'm just saying that I would like to, I can't, and it's really something that deserves really a conversation, but I'm at least qualifying it to say, I know that I'm not speaking to everybody's situation. I know I'm not covering every detail about forgiveness. I know that, and I can't, and I'm not intending to do it. But what I am intending to to do is to let this parable speak the way it's supposed to speak. All right? So that's that's a huge qualification, but I felt it was necessary to do it. So having then seen what we just saw, which is kind of the big picture, there's also something here that would be easy to miss. And this is something, I've spoken on this text before, and I've studied this text before, and I've missed it dozens and dozens of times. So I've learned something new in coming into this, and I'm uh, pretty excited. So one of the strengths of Protestantism, especially the evangelical version of Protestantism, has been the clear message that God forgives sins through Jesus. And that's good news, isn't it? Uh, when we talk about the gospel, we talk about good news, and part of the good news is that a person can be forgiven by God through Jesus, and, and, and that's fantastic. But with that message has come a tendency within evangelical Protestantism to really focus down on the personal on, and on the individual. In other words, forgiveness is really between me and God. As a result, Protestants tend to ignore the communal aspect of forgiveness, And yet this parable challenges us to care for more than simply the fact that we've been forgiven by God. We need to care about becoming a community of forgiveness where we're known for the way that we forgive each other. That's what this parable is going after. And I think that's what's at stake in this parable and in the whole chapter of Matthew 18. If you have your Bibles open, look down at that. And and the whole chapter, as you're scanning through it, of Matthew 18 is about reconciliation. In verse 15, if your brother sins against you, it's this, what do you do in this, in this particular case? And then Peter in verse 21 says, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? There's some interesting, uh, what Jesus, his response, I, could, I would have loved to have done a, a, a message on Jesus' response of 70 times 7 and what that echo was from the Old Testament and what Peter heard when Jesus responded with that number. Fascinating. But the whole thing, the whole chapter is about reconciliation. So the whole chapter is about reconciliation between followers of Jesus. Now hear that part carefully too. It's about between followers of Jesus. In other words, forgiveness is not simply about what I receive from God. Jesus is saying there's a communal aspect to this forgiveness. If you look at chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus, uh, not 18, verse 1, but excuse me, verse 23, 18, 23, He begins the parable by saying, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. And as we've said in previous uh, sermons, that when when Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven, it's another way of talking about the kingdom of God. The other synoptic gospels use that to talk about the kingdom of God. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, Jesus is talking about, he's describing the type of world that God brings into reality as people embrace the life that Jesus offers. And this reality is broken into the world. It's not something that's off in the distant future. It is broken into the world with Jesus coming to this earth and with him, his offer of the kingdom in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Jesus comes in Mark 1, 14 and 15 and Mark's first recorded words of Jesus really are about the kingdom. He says, hear the good news. The time is fulfilled. All that the Old Testament was hoping for, all the promises that God had given, all that had been aspired to to see become a reality from the Old Testament, it is now finding its fulfillment in me, Jesus is saying. What an audacious claim. 
Yet the scripture says that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. They find their fulfillment. They find their climax in Jesus. And so Jesus comes announcing this kingdom and he's talking about a new society that's, that's breaking into the world and it's marked by reconciliation, among other things. And that's why he gives this parable. He's talking about a new society that is marked by reconciliation. So as followers of Jesus practice forgiveness, we show the world what this new society looks like. That's what he's pressing into here. So why doesn't this seem to be emphasized or practiced more in churches? Well, which is easier? To ask God for forgiveness or to put in all the time and effort and relational capital to live in reconciled relationships with other people? Perhaps Jesus is getting at this in this parable. What if Jesus is saying that forgiveness in heaven is irrelevant if we don't forgive each other on earth? Keep your finger here and look at some other texts that are in Matthew, just so you see that I'm not pushing this parable too far and getting too much theology out of it when it shouldn't be used for that purpose. I understand that. But look at where Jesus gives some very clear words. Matthew 5, 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's a connection between the mercy that we receive and the mercy that we give. And then over a page to Matthew 6, verse 12, in the Lord's Prayer, He teaches us to say and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. There's that connection between the forgiveness we receive and the forgiveness we give. And then verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And those two verses have always troubled me. Whenever I preach on the Beatitudes, I just skip them. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 5. As you're thinking about your next pastor. (laughs) Matthew 5, 26. He says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That language sounds very similar to the language at the end of the parable that we just read. And if you look at this, this is about, in this context of Matthew chapter uh, 5, it's the context of uh, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. And there's, again, the theme of reconciliation that's going on here. So it's very explicit here, whereas in the parable it might be a little bit more implicit. But the focus is still that there's there's this connection There's this connection between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiving other people. Here's another way of looking at it. Imagine that you've got a day off and you're sitting at the park. You just wanted to get some time away. You wanted to get out of the house. You wanted to get away from everything. And and it's a beautiful day outside. It's not 150 in the shade. And there are kids that are playing out on the playground equipment. And you're kind of noticing that. And all of a sudden you hear a scream. And you look over toward the playground equipment and you see two toddlers fighting. And as you're watching, this little boy pushes down a little girl to the ground. 
And all of a sudden, an adult scrambles over to intervene. You're hoping perhaps it's one of the parents of these two. And sure enough, your suspicions are confirmed. You hear what appears to be the mother of the young boy telling the little boy about how unkind his actions were. And she's controlled. She's not screaming at him. She's not dropping F-bombs on him. She's not doing anything like that. She's very much under control in the way that she's addressing the child. And because of that, the child looks up to the mom and with contrite eyes, the little boy says to his mother, I'm sorry. Now, what does any good parent say at that point? Not to put any of you on the spot. A good parent would probably say, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate what you've said, but you need to go over to that little girl and you need to say that to her. And perhaps this is what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, as God's representative on earth, I forgive you. So you don't have to worry about that anymore. You don't have to go offer sacrifices. You don't have to go to the temple to secure God's pardon. I've taken care of that. I've taken care of that. It's settled. I have forgiven you. It is settled. Accept it. It's done. And so now you're released to go live out that forgiveness with each other. Jesus says in, Ma- in Matthew 6.14, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. See, there's this vertical and horizontal connection that has always puzzled me. How do we, how do we put that together? What do we do with that? It it strikes me that without this vertical and horizontal connection, it's easy for me to to then at least sin against you, then go confess my sin to God because I know he forgives, yet I never get around to seeking reconciliation with you because that's not my primary concern. See, if the horizontal piece is not in there, then I can just take advantage of the vertical piece and there's no impetus to go deal with the horizontal, to go deal with the reconciled relationships that need to take place. And yet Jesus says that this is about the kingdom of God. It's about the new society that Jesus has inaugurated with his coming to earth and with his public ministry, with his death, and with his resurrection and his ascension. So this is about Jesus wanting to create a community of forgiveness that reveals to people what the world is intended to look like when God is in charge. That's a much bigger view of what people, than what most people have about Christianity. Again, because we've narrowed it down to the personal, to the private, that's all that we end up with is thousands and millions of people across the globe who have a personal, private view of their relationship to God. But their eyes haven't been opened to this, the fact that what God wants to do is so much more. He wants us to be this new society that shows people what the world is intended to look like when God is in charge, and that that world has broken in with Jesus. It's a community where I am to forgive you and you are to forgive me and others around us are helping us both to do that. See, we don't just leave people alone to their own problems and say, well, I guess that's just the way it rolls. No, we are committed to each other to help each other be reconciled because we care about each other. We care about reconciliation. We care about the kingdom of God. So instead of people keeping score on how they've been hurt by others, it's a community intent on practicing forgiveness. 
The bottom line is, for me, is that it's a community that cares about God's reputation in the world. So why is this forgiveness stuff so important to God? Because it involves his reputation. It involves his reputation. Let that sink in for a second. See, Jesus connects our forgiving others with God's forgiving us. He connects God's forgiveness of us with our forgiving others. In other words, how we forgive others points to the way that God treats us. So how we forgive is telling the world how we've been forgiven by God. That's sobering. So to be a follower of Jesus is to represent the kingdom of God. It's not simply to have a personal relationship with Jesus by confessing your sin and praying a prayer. To be a follower of Jesus is to be someone who represents the kingdom of God. And it means we're part of a community that remembers that in all we do, God's reputation is on the line. And this is intended to inform all that we do. All that we do. How we spend our time. What we eat. What we watch on TV. What we drink. How much we drink. How we entertain ourselves. It's intended to inform our conversations. It's intended to form our schedules. It's intended to form every detail of our lives that we are representing the kingdom of God. So that our actions, what you do, what you say, what we do, what we say, and it's the we because it's this new society, we're telling the world this is what God is like. I, I thought about that yesterday. I was driving with my wife, and wow, it must have been a crazy day yesterday on Saturday for the drivers. It was just, I mean, it was amazing. And so she's very calm and collected, and I occasionally... Uh, have my moments behind the wheel. And, but it struck me after, you know, you, you can get ready for this preaching business and then go, and it can be so disconnected from, from just, whoa, wait a minute, dude, this is supposed to apply to you too. And it struck me because I knew I was going to be saying to you that, that all that we, in all that we do, we're telling the world this is what God is like. So is this what God is like? The way that I drive or the way that I look at people when, you know, they do certain things out there on the road. Is that what God is like? I don't think so. But you see, it's not, it's not just about a, a sin issue or I need to be better, I need to try harder, I need to be more moral or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that I represent the kingdom of God. I represent the kingdom of God. We represent the kingdom of God. And you know what else? I represent you. And you represent me. Right? We represent each other. And that's important that we not let each other down. And that's what I believe that Jesus is getting at in this parable. So you see the difference this makes for a community of people who share one thing in common, and that is namely that we've all received God's extravagant forgiveness. Because we've received his extraordinary forgiveness in the new life that Jesus offers, we now have an opportunity. And it's an opportunity to do something more than simply attend church and try not to be bored. 
See, we have an opportunity together to show the world what God is like and to give them a taste of God's new society and the world to come. A few weeks ago, I offered this little uh, diagram from Dallas Willard, uh, his acronym of VIM, vision, intention, mean, intention meaning decision. He says that the, the reason why so many people don't change, even though they have the means, you know, they have the exercise equipment, but they never do anything about it, is because they don't have a vision of a better life, a vision of what difference it could make that then causes them to make the decision to then use the means. And he says that's pretty much the way our lives function. There's a reason why we say we're going to do something and we never really do it, even though we go out and we buy things to make it happen. It all comes back to the vision. The vision. What vision drives us in life? That's the key piece. And what I have given to you today, the reason why I brought this up at the very end, is because what I have given you today falls into the category of vision, but it also there's a means issue, and that is forgiveness is about is about living in reconciled relationships. If we're going to live in reconciled relationships, we need to forgive and we need to practice that. That's the means part. But the vision part is the larger part that Jesus is giving. We represent the kingdom of God. We have been forgiven. The way that we treat each other says something to this society about what God is like. You see, that's vision, 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 vision. So the question always is what vision drives us and is it compelling to us? Is it compelling enough to us to make decisions toward it? And every one of us is answering it with our lives. Every one of us is answering it with our lives. But what I've attempted to do is to, to take Jesus' words and to give the vision that Jesus offers to us. So the question is, with that vision and with these means, what will we do, right? What will we do? What kind of people will we be? And my prayer is that God would continue to give us that vision to be that kind of community to a watching world. That we would have this robust, compelling vision together to be something more than just a group of individuals who collect to do nice things and toward each other and things like that, but that we would have a much more robust vision for presenting this new society that is so compelling to the watching world. May God make us that. Thanks be to God.